All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Y'all can be seated. Welcome to Covenant Church today. Uh, I feel like I should introduce myself. I see a lot of faces I don't know. My name's Weston Brown. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Covenant Church. And often you will see me up here leading worship, uh, but also in addition to that, Several months ago, our family, uh, my wife Lindsay and I and our three daughters, along with uh, nine or ten other families from here in Bossier, we launched out to start a new church in Shreveport called Covenant Shreveport. And so over the last six to eight months or so, that's where a lot of my time and attention has been going. And so I haven't gotten to be here as often preaching, uh, but God is doing some really cool stuff in Shreveport, and uh, we desperately need your prayers, much like Stephen in New Orleans. Uh, This is in like 16, 17 years of vocational ministry, this is one of the hardest things that I've ever done um, because we are in a state of just complete and total reliance on Jesus. And so we need your prayers, we need your support, uh, we need your help in this process. And so I hope that uh, as you uh, become a part of Covenant Church or as you continue to be a part of Covenant Church, that you will be uh, not only lifting us up, but lifting guys like Stephen and his family up and others who are doing this work of church planting and church revitalization. Uh, For years, I I thought uh, we don't need more churches, we need better churches. And now I've come to the conclusion we need both. Uh, We need both things. We not only need better churches, we also need different kinds of churches that will reach different kinds of people, and we need your prayers in all of that. So... uh I if, I if I sound especially, like my voice is especially deep and sultry today, it is simply because I am rocking a wicked head cold. Uh, the good news is I am hopped up on Mucinex, and who knows what's going to come out of my mouth today. So, hey, would you stand with me this morning? We're going to uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18, and continue in our series on Acts. Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. It's the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. So this week, we are actually jumping backwards in the book of Acts. A couple of weeks ago, Jason taught on Acts 17, which was the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens uh, debating uh, with the intelligentsia in the Areopagus in the city of Athens. Last week, Luke taught from Acts 19. And so what we're doing today is we're going back to hit this chapter here in the middle, Acts 18. And we find ourselves, as we know, with the Apostle Paul, he's actually nearing the end of his second missionary journey at this point. And that second missionary journey primarily centered on the provinces around Greece. And so we pick up today, as we saw, verse 1, as he's leaving the city of Athens and he's arriving in the city of Corinth, which was about 46 miles west of Athens. And as we just heard in our text, it's here where Paul meets these two, Aquila and Priscilla, fellow Jews who had been expelled from Rome by the Roman emperor. Now, we don't know a ton about them other than the fact that they were tent makers. We make the assumption, perhaps, that they were already Christian believers and that that was part of the reason, perhaps, why they were being expelled from Rome. And Paul joins them in their work of tent making while continuing to preach and proclaim the gospel to Jews and Gentiles at every opportunity. And, and so... With all that in mind, I don't know if you're like me, but, but what can happen for me as I read through the book of Acts is, is I get to about this point in Acts and, and everything starts to seem really repetitive to me. It, it can seem as if there's this cycle that just kind of perpetuates. And it's Paul enters a city, he preaches the gospel, some people believe and get baptized, other people want him dead, he gets arrested or he gets beaten, he gets hauled in front of some kind of judge or court or council or tribunal or something, or he gets thrown in jail, and then somehow, miraculously through the power of God, uh, either some kind of an amazing thing happens or Paul gets saved in some kind of, or released in some kind of miraculous way. And then it's like he just goes to another city and that same cycle kind of perpetuates itself over again. And so as you read Acts, if, you, if you're not really digging into things, if you're just kind of doing a cursory reading, sometimes it can seem to be uh, a little bit like, is, is anything new happening here? And, and so rather than just looking at the account of events in this text today, what I want us to do is actually consider the life and example of Paul. Because even though Paul is not Jesus, Paul does provide us with an amazing example of what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. I've heard uh, Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, say before uh, that, that Paul can seem almost like this superhuman character as you read the New Testament. Because Paul is this guy who, um, if you try to kill him, he, he says, praise God because to die is gain, 
right? But, but if you let him live, Paul rejoices and says, that's awesome because to live is Christ. So it's, it's almost like you can't do anything to him. It's almost like he doesn't care about himself at all. It's almost as if he never messes up or he never makes a wrong turn. And, and, and I think part of the reason why Paul was able to live this way is because, first of all, he is submitting fully to the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Right? He, he is not primarily leaning on his own strength or ability, but instead he is giving everything to the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct him. That, that, that seems just obvious. But, but I think the other piece, and what we're going to spend some time on today, is, is the second thing that I think leads Paul into this place of almost seeming a little bit superhuman is, is that he seems to be way farther down the road than many of us in actually making Jesus Christ his treasure. Right? Paul actually seems to have placed Jesus at the center of his life and existence. Jesus truly seems to be the driving force and the purpose and the goal of Paul's entire existence. In other words, Paul isn't putting any other gods, any other idols before Christ. And in particular, he's not succumbing succumbing to an especially pernicious idol, uh, an especially devious lesser God that many of us, myself included, fall victim to, and that is the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort. And this is what I want to dig into with you guys this morning. I want to identify the ways in which Paul is forsaking personal comfort for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And then I want to challenge us to embrace in our lives a holy discomfort for the cause of Christ. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, believed that every violation of the Ten Commandments was ultimately first a violation of commandment number one. What is commandment number one? Who knows? What's that? Yeah, yeah. You shall have no other gods before me. So, So Martin Luther's perspective was, ultimately, if I lie, I'm lying because I have set up in my heart another God that is not the one true God that is worth lying for. Right? So, so if I steal something, I'm stealing something because I've set up in my heart another God that is not the one true God who is worth stealing for. So in Luther's perspective, underneath every behavioral sin was idolatry. Idolatry. So as, as you think about that, if Luther is right, and I, and I think he's right, every one of us struggles with idolatry. Every one of us struggles with idolatry. And it isn't just something that some people deal with. It's something that affects and afflicts every single one of us. And and that that maybe is a surprising statement to you because perhaps when you think of idols... You picture like the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses has been up on the mountain for a couple of weeks and the people are grumbling and saying, oh, he must be dead. He must not be coming back. We're going to die here in the wilderness. And so they melt down their gold jewelry and and, and mold it into the image of, of a calf and they all literally bow down in front of this golden calf. Maybe that's what you think of 
when you think of idolatry, maybe that's your picture. But, but listen, the reality for us is that the idolatry that has infected us is far less obvious because it isn't overtly religious in nature. The idolatry that infects us isn't overtly religious in nature. In other words, for most of us probably in this room, the idolatry that we're struggling with is not whether or not we're going to worship the Buddha or or if we're going to embrace Hinduism and worship the pantheon of gods associated with Hinduism. No, no, no. The idolatry that most of us deal with is not overtly religious in that way. The New City Catechism says that idolatry at its core is worshiping the created rather than the creator. But often, the the true idols of our heart, the root idols, the deep idols, are hidden and obscure to the point that maybe we're not even aware of them. Maybe we're not even cognizant of them. They are so deeply embedded in our hearts. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous British preacher in the 1900s, said, an idol is anything in my life that occupies a place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is something that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, attention, and money to it effortlessly. Like that that an idol is something that's so deeply embedded in my heart that not only am I not even fully aware that it exists there, but it also motivates me and inspires me and rouses me to do things like give my money away or give my time and attention, the things that many of us consider to be some of the most precious commodities in my life. It, it rouses me to do that effortlessly. I don't even realize it. I don't even recognize what's going on. Many people... Christian counselors, psychologists identify four primary root idols. Uh, These are idols that are buried within us. These these aren't things that necessarily manifest on the surface, what some people call branch idols, things that are kind of out there on a limb. No, 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 these are things that are buried deep in the root system. Many people identify four primary root idols. Uh, The first is power, which is a longing for position, influence, or recognition. The second is control, a longing to have everything go according to my plan. Third is approval, a longing to be accepted or desired or well-liked. And then the fourth is comfort, a longing for a life of ease. Power, control, approval, and comfort. And not surprisingly, one of the primary ways to identify the idols that most trouble us is to answer the question, what am I most afraid of? What am I most afraid of? If my greatest fear is being invisible or unremarkable or unknown, then quite possibly the primary root idol in my life is the pursuit of power. If my primary fear 
is that things aren't going to happen in the way that I want them to happen, then it's possible that a primary root idol for me is control or if I am deeply afraid of people being displeased with me or unaccepting of me, then maybe acceptance is what's driving me. Or for you, if you're afraid of doing hard things, you're afraid of being stressed, if you're afraid of going without, could it be that comfort and a longing for comfort is driving you? So a good question here is what does any of this have to do with Acts 18, right? I'm glad you asked. Uh, If you would, turn with me over to the book of 1 Corinthians. Remember, Paul is in the city of Corinth. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Some scholars believe that this chapter perhaps reflects Paul's time in Corinth that we see in the book of Acts and the fact that he was having to support himself financially through tent making. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope that the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So so let's stop there for a minute. Apparently Paul is encountering opposition in Corinth to the idea that he would in some way be supported financially by other people or by local congregations in his apostolic ministry. And so what what we're seeing here is we're seeing Paul push back against that notion that, that Paul should just do what he's doing for free. Right? That, that he shouldn't be entitled or receive any kind of compensation for the gospel ministry that he's go- doing. And, and, and Paul's going, look, I'm out here proclaiming the good news of Jesus. I'm going to jail. I'm being beaten. And, and you guys, Corinthian church, you are the proof that I'm not a charlatan. You're the proof that I'm not just doing this for myself. He says, you are the seal of my apostleship. You are my workmanship. And so he makes this case, and and basically he says, look, if a farmer plants a field, isn't he entitled to eat what is grown in the field? Or if a soldier goes to battle, doesn't his country's government pay his expenses? So, So why do you think 
that I shouldn't be entitled to be supported in the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and, and you can almost hear the rumor mill going behind the case that Paul was making. You can almost hear people saying, you know he's just doing this for the money, right? You know he's just doing this so he doesn't have to like do manual labor for a living. You know he's just doing this for the cash, Paul's going, you have got to be kidding me. What like what cash? What, what money? This has never been and it never will be about money. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, am I not entitled to some level of compensation so that I can keep going and keep doing the thing that I have done here for you people? So now, here's what's interesting to me. Paul could basically scold and shame the Corinthian church for not supporting him financially and then go, okay, now that I've made my case, I'll be expecting your check in the mail next month. But that's not at all what he does here. Look at verse 13. Paul begins that chapter by saying, look, I have every right, I have every right to be compensated for my apostolic ministry. But then he gets to verse 13 and he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So I'm entitled to be supported by you, but I haven't pushed this I haven't demanded this because I don't want there to be any obstacle in your life that's in the way of you receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am giving up that right, even though it is mine to claim, even though I am entitled to it. I am giving it up because I don't want the money thing to be an impediment to you. So in other words, the gospel is far more important to Paul than his material comfort. It's far more important that the people reading this actually receive the good news of Jesus than Paul be personally compensated by them. It's infinitely more important to him. And Paul was consistently willing to give up his rights if he believed that it would advance the gospel. So, so hold that in your mind this morning. Paul's willingness consistently to give up his rights if it meant it would advance the gospel of Jesus. In Philippians 1, Paul's writing from prison. Here's what he tells his readers. He tells them how great it is to be in jail. Verse 12 of Philippians 1 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's literally saying, look at all the wonderful things that have happened because I went to jail. He's not bemoaning being in jail. He's not saying, when are you guys going to break me out of here, right? He's not saying, where is God? He's going, look what God has done. He's put me here, right? So that the gospel might be known among all of the imperial guard. God has put me here so that other brothers would be inspired by my enslavement and be pushed on in boldness to Christ. So listen, Paul is either insane. 
He is either crazy or his personal freedoms and comfort are actually secondary in his life to his Lord and Savior, Jesus. Those are the only two options. Paul is either a masochistic, crazy person, or he has been born again into a different reality. Unless you ever think that God would never call you to give up your personal freedoms or your money or your stuff, take a moment and just read the account of Paul's life. What do you love more? Your comfort or our Savior, Jesus? Because here's the thing. In the scriptures, material comfort and Jesus don't really seem to go together. Matthew eight nineteen through 22, a scribe came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is saying, I appreciate you saying that you want to follow me. Now are you actually going to follow me? Because here's the deal. I'm I'm the literal son of God. And even I don't have anywhere to lay my head. And there are so many passages that we could look to to support this idea. It's the reason the rich young ruler walks away sad. It's the reason why Jesus says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In all of these things, listen, Jesus isn't just challenging our actions and our behaviors. Jesus is challenging the lesser gods that we're worshiping. He's challenging our idols. And he's saying, who do you love more? It's not just a money thing. But, but let's be clear, money is not just money. And there's a reason why Jesus talks about money so much. It's because money is actually a surface idol, a branch idol, for all four of the root idols that I mentioned earlier. We equate the possession of money with power, control, approval, and comfort. We think, if I just have enough money, I will be powerful. If I just have enough money, I'll be able to do whatever I want. If I just have enough money, I'll be respected and admired and successful. If I just have enough money, I can have whatever I want. If I just have enough money, I won't have to work anymore. If I just have enough money, I won't have any problems anymore. Money isn't just money. It is the profit of whatever lesser God we serve. And it's the reason why Jesus said no one can serve two masters. It's not that this thing in and of itself is evil until it becomes the God of your heart. Pastor David Platt said, we live in a culture that is deeply committed to comfort, health, and safety. 
which, by the way, are also things that we think money can buy us. He says, this isn't surprising because if this life is all there is, then let's make it as comfortable, as long, and as pleasure-filled as possible. Let's get more, let's get better, nicer, newer possessions, build bigger barns, larger savings accounts, and 401ks to protect you just in case. Avoid risk, maximize reward, live your best life now. Here's the problem with your best life, whatever that is. It cannot be lived now. Your best life cannot be lived now. If anything, your best life is to come. And, and here's, here's my great fear for us. My great fear is that many of us are evidencing with our lives that we are not convinced that there is a life to come and that that life is actually better than this one. Because everything about our lives says, now is all that matters. We live in a culture where Christians primarily define blessings as being material things. But Paul's saying, look at all of these blessings that have come from me being in jail and being in chains for the gospel. We live in a culture that is constantly telling us that what you want is what is most important. And that mindset, I think, is pervading the people of God. And I hope that you will agree that that becomes a big problem for the Christian when what we want most isn't Christ. When my comfort or my health or my safety becomes a reason why I would not take a risk for the gospel of Jesus, then I actually become the thing that Paul was striving to avoid. I become an impediment to the gospel. When I'm not willing to do what Jesus has called me to do. Let's continue on in 1 Corinthians verse 15. Remember, Paul says, here are all my rights. Here are the things I'm entitled to. Verse 15 says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Do you get what he's saying here? He's saying, I can't boast about being a preacher of the gospel, because this is the greatest and most important news ever. Like he's saying, it would be silly of me to think that I'm somehow remarkable because I want to tell people the greatest news I've ever heard, right? I'm not special in that. I just actually believe it. I actually think it's the greatest news that I've ever heard. And so, of course, I want to tell people about it. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing remarkable about the fact that I want to preach the gospel. He says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, I'd be an idiot not to preach the gospel. I'd be a fool not to share this with other people. Verse 17, he says, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will... I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? It says Paul has been given a stewardship. And the Greek word 
there is uh, found in the root of a Greek word we looked at several weeks ago, the, the word oikos. You remember us talking about the word oikos. Which can, it can mean a variety of things, but typically it relates to a home, or it could be the actual structure, it could be the family that lives in the home. But the word that Paul uses here is oikonomia, which means household. So when Paul says, I've been given a stewardship, what he's saying is, I've been given a household. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul has gladly given up his rights because he has been entrusted with a household. Paul says, my reward is to simply present the good news of Jesus to the people that God has given me and to see to it that there is no barrier to them receiving it. They aren't having to pay for it. I'm going to great lengths to make sure that even rumors about me might be proved untrue because I don't want there to be anything that stands between them and the good news of Jesus. So Paul is giving up his rights because he has been given a stewardship by God. So so let's read on here as he explains his reasoning. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Stop there. Listen to me. If your version of Christianity does not include you becoming a servant so that you can declare and display the gospel of Jesus to other people, then you don't believe in biblical Christianity. Are you following me? Paul's saying, I am doing this all for the gospel. I am becoming a servant to others and giving up my rights for the sake of the gospel. I'm doing this not because I just think it's a good idea. I'm doing this because it's what I've seen my Savior do for me. I've seen the Son of God step down out of heaven, be made lower than the angels, become a man, and live in this sinful, fallen world so that I might be reconciled to our Father in heaven. He became a servant for me, and so I become a servant because of him and his good news and his example. Paul is giving up his rights, and he is becoming a servant, he says, so that I might win more of them. So if your version of Christianity is only about you going to church, or it's only about you reading the Bible and praying, and it doesn't involve you personally becoming a servant, then it's not biblical Christianity, and it is not what Jesus has called us to. He goes on in verse 20, he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So confession time for me. Can I say that this paragraph deeply bothers me? There's something about what Paul's saying here that really cuts me because ingrained within me, and I don't know about you, but but inside of me is a vibrant, I think very American individualism. In other words, I I have no desire 
to even attempt to be all things to all people. That sounds miserable to me, honestly. I very much want to be my own person. I very much want to do my own thing. I value being different than other people. And the idea of having to change who I am or alter who I am or how I come across so that I might be more palatable to others or so that the gospel might be more accessible to others, honestly, it kind of makes my skin crawl. Now, here's what's interesting about me is that I simultaneously struggle with caring way too much about what other people think of me. So, so it's this weird dichotomy, right, of I don't want to be all things to all people, but I'm also concerned if I even tried to be all things to all people that some people would be displeased with me because I'm seeking to win people who are not maybe like them or like us. Do y'all get what I'm talking about? I'm worried that other people will think I'm a sellout or something. So ultimately, this is an identity issue, isn't it? And, and chances are, you, you've experienced something like this. But here's the thing with Paul. Jesus isn't simply his treasure, as I said earlier. Here's the thing with Paul. Jesus has also become his identity. Most of the time, I'm trying really hard to do what our culture encourages me to do, which is to be true to myself. Paul, on the other hand, is trying really hard to be true to Christ. More than likely, you spend most of your time trying to be true to yourself. Paul, on the other hand, is showing us what it looks like to actually be self-forgetful and to decrease so that the person of Christ and the gospel of Jesus might increase. This is a massive shift. And Paul lets on in verse 24, this is no walk in the park. This isn't easy for him. Verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it to receive an imperishable wreath. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So again, Paul wants nothing to stand between the gospel and the people that he's proclaiming it to. And most importantly, he wants to make sure that he doesn't stand between them and the gospel. So he says, I'm willing to endure deep discomfort so that you might come to know Jesus. I'm saying no to my basal urges. I'm doing the difficult work of putting sin to death in my life. I'm striving to remain scandal-free so that you won't be able to say, oh, I guess he didn't really believe all of that stuff after all. Man, I think about just some of like the major pastoral church scandals that have occurred even just over the last few years. And, and to be honest with you, I can be a little bit guilty of, of you know, kind of being like a, like a rabid spectator when it comes to some of those things. Like I'm watching a movie, eating my popcorn, going, what's going to happen next when these, when these leaders who have ascended to the heights of power and authority and control within American Christianity suddenly get toppled because, as it turns out, apparently they had sin in their life. What a surprise, right? Just so we're clear, we're all sinful, right? Just so we're clear, we all struggle with that. 
No one's removed from that. Why would we ever be surprised that somebody struggles with sin? And, and yet, I recognize what Paul is talking about here. Imagine the damage that, that is done when one of those guys falls and all of these people who have been primarily looking to them as a spiritual leader or have been looking to them for wisdom or have been looking to them to go, what does it look like to follow Christ in my life? Can't you, maybe you've experienced this, can't you understand how that would make you question everything about Christianity? I've been reading a book recently, a history book about the American church in the 20th century. Here's something that has fascinated me. So um, there was a massive boom for the American church, as most of you know, in the 1950s. Churches exploded. Churches were building everywhere across America. And then the 1960s, after the Kennedy assassination, as, as we got into Vietnam and all of that stuff, suddenly the religious climate in America began to change, and, and America went from experiencing this massive boom in Christianity to suddenly everything just took a huge nosedive. And there were a bunch of people who were trying to figure out, well, why is this happening? What's going on here? And so some leaders in some mainstream, mainline denominations, uh, like the Presbyterian Church and the United Methodist Church and the Episcopalian Church, some of those uh, just mainline historic denominations, they said, oh, here's what the problem is. Here's why people are leaving the church. All of these things that we've held to that, that maybe seem difficult, like, like women not being allowed into eldership within the church, or top-tier leadership, or the fact that we don't allow homosexuals, um, you know, to become pastors or any of those kinds of things. Maybe those are the reasons why people are leaving the church. And so if we could just let go of 2,000 years of Orthodox Christian belief and make those things a little bit more accessible to people and a little bit more palatable to people, then maybe all these people are going to come back to the church. So what you saw in the 60s was some of these groups start to make some of those concessions and start to make some of those major shifts in what they thought and what they did and what they believed. And here's, here's what happened. What they hoped, that all of these people would come back to the church, the opposite took place. Because people went, wait a second. Wait, you're telling me that these things that you have held to and believed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that overnight they've just vanished? It's not a thing anymore? Then why should I believe any of this? Like, why should I follow any of this? If these deeply held things can just be gone overnight, then, then why, why make this a part of my life at all? Do you, do you, do you get that? The psychology there? And, and so what people thought would happen completely backfired and only led to more decline in the American church. So hopefully you can grasp what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that he's sinless, and, but, but he is saying, I am doing everything that I can possibly do to put sin to death in my life because I realize what a huge nuclear bomb this could be for the people that I'm seeking to win with the gospel if I suddenly go off the rails into sin. Paul says in Romans six sixteen, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience to God, which leads to righteousness. So according to Paul, 
Every single one of us is a slave to something, but it's only one of two things. It's either righteousness or it's death. You are either a slave to Christ or you are a slave to some lesser God that will only lead you to separation from the one true God. And so in these last few moments, I just want to explore where our slavery lies by asking a few pointed questions. So maybe write these down, maybe spend some time thinking about them. Or maybe you're removed from these things and you're more holy than any of us. I don't know. Uh, Number one, when is the last time you took a risk because you thought it might advance the gospel of Jesus? When's the last time you took a risk because you thought it might advance the gospel of Jesus? Now, this doesn't have to be some earth-shattering thing. Maybe it's, I got on a plane and went to Africa because I thought it might advance the gospel of Jesus. Or or maybe it's, I, I went downtown and I served with the poor because I thought it might advance the gospel of Jesus. What what is it for you? Maybe it's I, I quit my job and started doing this other thing, making way less money because I thought it might advance the gospel of Jesus. When is the last time you took a risk? Secondly, what percentage of your income is dedicated to other people? What percentage of your income is dedicated to other people? Third, when is the last time you gave your money away sacrificially, meaning in a way where you felt it, in a way where maybe you couldn't do other things because you had given the money away? When's the last time you gave your money away sacrificially to something that would not ultimately benefit you? When's the last time that you verbally shared the gospel with another person even though you knew it might make the conversation awkward. Or even though you were worried they might reject you socially. When's the last time you pushed through discomfort in order to serve another person? I spent a couple of years as the director of the Hub Urban Ministries downtown serving the poor and survivors of human trafficking. We had hundreds of volunteers that came to our doors every year, and I cannot begin to tell you how many people never came back <laughs> because they, quote, felt uncomfortable. If not you, who? Now, here's the good news for us, y'all. There is abundant grace to be found in Jesus Christ, is there not? There's abundant grace to be found in Jesus Christ. But, but listen, be very careful that you understand God's grace correctly. Because God's grace doesn't exist so that when you are convicted of your sin, you can say, thank God for his grace, and then just go on in your sin. God's grace exists so that when you are convicted of your sin, you might be moved by the beauty and sacrifice of Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. It is his kindness 
that leads us to repentance. It is his kindness as seen through his willingness to forgive everything in our life. It is so we might become more like him. Paul says again, Romans 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. No, God's grace should lead us to repentance. So, so church, we have to fall in love with Jesus to the point that we want to work and sacrifice so that our lives might look like him and so that his good news might be made known to more and more people. And those aren't just people around the world. That's people right here, some of whom are in this room, some of whom are in your neighborhood, some of whom are in your workplace. When is the last time? Would those people be surprised, by the way, to find out that you're a Christ follower? Because, because if that's the case, then maybe that's a red flag for you, that, that something's got to change about your life. Hey, let me just finish with John thirteen fifteen. John thirteen fifteen is immediately after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. And here's what he says to them. He says, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I've set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. In the way, Jesus says, that I have literally stooped before you and washed the dirt and the dung off of your feet. Go and do likewise. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Father, I just want to recognize this morning that none of us do this perfectly. We want to recognize that Paul didn't do this perfectly. In fact, Paul was clear that he was the chief among sinners. Paul was not free from temptation. Paul was not free from screwing up, and neither are we. And so, Father, we confess that we desperately need your grace this morning. We desperately need the salvation that Jesus offers to us. But, Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be spurred on to more, that we would not be content with being casual church attenders or just being people that claim you, but that we would truly be willing to give all for the sake of your gospel that we would truly place you as the treasure of our lives, that we would seek to find our identity not in ourselves or in the things of this world, but in you, and that, Father, you would reveal in our hearts the true idols and that you would give us the tools to put those things to death. We thank you for your great love for us, a love that led you to send your only son to die so that we might be reconciled to you and be made right before you and have life abundant. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory, and it is in your holy name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?